all right, this kind of feels like Joe Rogan. I know we're not together, but just as I rolled the tape, you you reach for your bong. Yeah, no, definitely, man. Gotta get my head right. I wish I could pass you the bong. Alas, we're, we're gonna get there, you know? Like, how long did it take Joe Rogan to be hanging out with Elon Musk when he was smoking Jays? It was like 1,500 episodes, man. I want, this is gonna be like episode 20. Yeah, yeah. No, but he, he did the UFC stuff too, so he got real popular from the UFC stuff. Yeah. And before he was on, uh, he was on Fear Factor before UFC. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so yeah. And then he was on, uh, he did some other thing. They had some documentary about mushrooms, I think like around 2012, and they took it on tour, like across the U.S., and Joe Rogan was like the host. Oh, wow. Yeah, so his like psychedelic shit, like it's not new, it goes back. You know, he's been, he's been in the psychedelic scene. All right, well. I'm earning my stripes out here. And before we rolled the tape, you were saying that you lived in England in High Wycombe, which is where my football team Wycombe Wanderers is from. So I, I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, get into this without shouting out my my team, which is right next to my my mum and dad's hometown in Charlefont. Yeah, yeah. So I I moved over there. My dad was in the military, so we got stationed over there when I was a teenager. We lived there from um, 1984 to 1987. We lived in um, Chorleywood in Hertfordshire County, and that's where I went to school in High Wycombe because it's a High Wycombe Air Force Base. You know, the, the British Air Force Base, they had an American high school called London Central High School, and they used to bus all the kids, you know, they were all over, all the American kids that lived all over, you know, the London area, bust them all to there. And then they used to bring in a lot of kids. They had dorms, so they brought in a lot of other kids. You know, anybody that diplomats or military people that were stationed you know, around Europe at that time, they brought them to this school, you know, in, in, mm-hmm. in High Wycombe. So, yeah, it was it was pretty cool. You know, um, I never saw the, the 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 you know, the Wycombe Wanderers, but uh, I, I fell in love with Arsenal, man. I'm an Arsenal fan. Oh, yeah. Yeah, my, um, the other half of my family support Arsenal. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I felt, really, I felt, I knew about Arsenal when I was there, but, you know, I was a teenager, so I wasn't really into, uh, you know, football or soccer that much, but... um. I fell in love with Arsenal, like watching the Champions League games, you know, like in the in the in the late nineties. Mm-hmm. You know, like when they 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 had like Dennis Bergkamp, you know, Terry Henry, you know, uh Mark P- uh Pyers, Robert Pyers, you yeah. know, Mark Overmars, you know, Tony Adams, like that team. You know, I used they to watch the they Champions League. Basically. It was a yeah. it was a whole they revolutionized the game with Arsene Arsene Wenger and you know, he got them to stop eating bread sandwiches and started doing proper training sessions and shit that was when i was in prison so that was when i was doing time and you know what's funny i always tell people right like sometimes like literally dude if i wanted to watch a champions league game in one of the tv rooms in the afternoon because that's when they're over here in the states you know they're like two three dude i would literally like have to fight man i would literally have to fight to watch the champions league sometime in prison punches yeah i would have to fight bro they're like because dude want to give a you know somebody's watching something and I'd be like, well, you know, whatever. I watch this, this here every week. You know, you would have to fight sometimes. Because dudes, oh they don't want to give the TV or they think you're punking them out. And did you win these fights typically? Uh, sometimes. I'm, I'm pretty, you know, I'm, I'm about 6'1", 225. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not a small dude. I'm pretty good wrestler. I can throw my hands a little bit. Yeah, but, uh, you know, I don't know. I, if you fight, you probably lose as many fights as you get in unless, like, you're a trained fighter or whatever. So, you know, you know, I, I fought a lot. But, you know, I probably lost as many fights as I've won. And you were inside for, was it 21 years for basically yeah. selling 
cannabis and LSD. Yeah, I was a first time nonviolent offender. I never carried a gun. You know, I didn't have a criminal organization. But for my case, which was, I got indicted like 91. So, you know, my case was like stuff from the late 80s, like 90s. You know, they like made me out like I was a John Gotti of the suburbs or something. You know, because I was on I was on the college scene. You know, it was all like rich white kids mostly. Um, yeah, but that was the times back then. You know, that was the, the war on drugs. That was the height of the war on drugs. All those laws got passed like around 1988. So it was like three years in. And I was really that first group because the first three years of the war on drugs, you know, they were basically like like targeting you know, like the blacks in the inner city, you know, because the crack era, you know, because crack, you know, because some cops would get shot. There was a famous uh, murder of a cop or infamous murder of a cop in New York City, Edward Byrne, like 1988, like they just snuck up on him. And so that's when they passed all these laws because all the Pablo Escobar stuff was going on, narco terrorism. And then, you know, they had the, the young black gangbangers started killing cops and our government freaked out, you know, because they didn't want no Pablo Escobar shit in our in our in the U.S., and, um, you know, they overreacted like governments typically do, you know, and they did the war on drugs. So, you know, that first three years that they were hitting the inner cities and, and the young, uh, you know, black guys real hard and um, the African-American communities. And then after three years, once they started getting some criticism that the laws were racist, they were like, oh, no, the laws aren't racist. We bust white drug dealers, too. And, you know, they went out to the suburbs for like the weed and the coke and, and the psychedelic dealers. And I was in that first wave. You know, well, 91, like, I, yeah, I was one. as soon as they got some criticism that the laws were racist, they, the DEA kind of went out into the suburbs, you know, and started busting uh, white drug dealers to show that they weren't racist. Yeah. And I, I read the, or that the, the laws, that the laws weren't racist. Mm -hmm, yeah. And you got caught in the crossfire somehow. Uh, and I read that there was a nine month investigation into you and, and then that you spent two years on the run after your initial arrest and, and you elaborately staged your own drowning. Yeah, yeah. So um, I was probably doing my thing, you know, probably from like 86 to 91. But it wasn't, I'd say like that, that the period where they investigated me like that last nine months, that was kind of when I was really putting it all together because I was, I was young, man. I was a kid, even... uh you know, like when they started investigating me, like I was barely 20 years old, you know, so and a lot of the stuff I was doing, I was like 17, 18, 19. But um, I kind of put it together right at the end, right before I got busted. And, and you know, really, I, I, I tell people, yeah, I, I messed around with drugs, but, you know, it wasn't like I was this big dealer. It wasn't until, you know, probably like right around when I was 20 and some of my friends started going off to the colleges. And um, I started delivering stuff to them. So I was supplying like 15 colleges in five states, you know, on the East Coast, you know, like Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and then, uh, you know, like Washington, D.C. So I was driving all around there. I was really kind of, you know, like career-wise or, or, or drug dealer-wise or success-wise, I was kind of hitting my stream, you know, getting my stride. And then like right when I got busted, I actually started making some decent money. I was making probably like 20, 30 grand a month. You know, they, they we're talking like, you know, 1990, but I had like a real short run, you know, like I said, I had basically like that nine months, you know, where I kind of blew up. And then as soon as I blew up, I got popped, you know, I, I blew up at the wrong time because right when I blew up and that's right, right when they came out looking for people like me. Gosh. So what sort of weight were you moving at that time? I was getting, you know, like 10,000 hits a month. So a hundred mm -hmm. sheets basically, you know, and then like weed. I mean, the weed I would get, 
whatever, two, 300 pounds. You know, that's like the Mexican weed, like the brick weed, I'd get two, 300 pounds. You know, the domestic weed, like what they call the kind bud, you could, back then you could only get maybe from like August to January, like when they harvested. So I would get stuff out of Kentucky and I would get stuff out of Emerald Triangle, you know, but that was a lot smaller amounts because, you know, that those, a lot of those farmers, they only grew, you know, like 20, 30 pounds, whatever they could get away with, you know, because they had the helicopters out there, you know, and all types of stuff. So it was like, uh, yeah, it was crazy. You know, I, I don't know how the war on drugs was in England, but the war on drugs in here in some parts, it was like really a war. You know, they had like military helicopters, all types of shit. You know, it was really a war over here. Yeah, some LSD labs got shut down here and there was definitely like big, big operations to do so. But yeah, everything pales in comparison to just the ferocity and yeah. the intensity of, of policing and practically everything else. I remember when, when I lived over there, I remember like, uh, you know, the cops, like they didn't carry guns. I was like, whoa, this is crazy. You know, coming from, I grew up in California. So coming from California, you know, they got the cars, you know, they got all the weaponry in the cars, you know, they always got the sidearm. And I moved to England at 14. I was like, man, they just got like a baton. Like, what do they do? What do they do with real criminals? They fight I mean, them hand, yeah. hand to hand? Well, you guys have always had guns, I suppose, at least since the colonization of the States, because then just the whole Wild West thing and frontier culture emerged from that. But obviously in the UK, it's a whole different story. And the state has had consolidated power for, for a far, far longer time. And yeah, yeah. I guess at the end of the day as well, like if the cops have guns and that encourages the, the criminals to have guns as well, right? Yeah, no, definitely. But you know what? I always noticed like when I lived in England and then I think just Europe in general, I don't know. Maybe it's because like you said, like the the government's the institution, the citizenship have, has been around for like so much longer. Like compared to America, it seems like you guys stand up in all of Europe. It seems like you guys stand up more. You know what I'm saying? I've always had that feeling like, you know, complain about stuff or like government stuff where people here here. It's just like you just try to make a lot, enough money so nothing affects you. You know what I'm saying? That's kind of like the attitude. Like you try to get to such an economic level where, you know, the law, you know, not like the laws don't apply to you, but, you know, you don't have to deal with it, you know, where it seems like over there, like people actually like, you know, protest and fight. They protest here, but they protest here. It's all like media stuff. It's all money related. You know, everything here is money related. It's not about, you know, it's it's weird how, how Europe and, and U.S. are different in that way, I think. Yeah, we've been obviously having some really, really big protests against the violence against Palestinians in yeah Gaza. But I mean, you guys have the Black Panthers, dude. And what's up yeah. with the US practically being the figurehead of the whole psychedelic renaissance and the whole, all the decrim movements and the psychedelic church movements over there? I know it's not necessarily like, you know- Well, that's our outlaws. We got good, we got good. But, but folks yeah. have got personality and they're, and they're doing their yeah. thing. Whereas- We got I mean, good here, outlaws. Uh -huh. We got we got better outlaws. Yeah, you got you guys probably got better citizens. Europe has better citizens citizens because American citizens don't give a fuck. But uh, yeah, no, we do got we got good outlaws. Definitely have good outlaws. Yeah, and you you've been called, or I don't know if you named yourself the outlaw journalist, right? Yeah, outlaw outlaw filmmaker. So um, yeah, because I started writing, I started writing, you know, so we can go back to kind of like my personal story. So boom, I get busted in 1991. Um, I'm looking at like, they're talking like, like 20 to life. And I'm like, 
You know, like a first-time nonviolent offense, man. I just saw like some ass and weed at colleges. You know, I mean, for a teenager, yeah, I was a big drug dealer. But you know, in the big scheme of things, I, you know, the twenty, thirty thousand dollars ain't a month. They got people who are making a million dollars a day. You know, so mm-hmm. in the big scheme of things, I, I was really a small fish. So I kind of, I couldn't wrap my head around that. Like, why are they trying to give me so much time? Like, I didn't kill anybody. I'm, you know, I didn't do, you know, I like stole some shit that people want. Not even bad drugs. Like, I consider those righteous drugs, psychedelics and cannabis. Word. And um, how did it feel then? Just before you go any further, how did it feel facing? 20 to life and in the end obviously you served 21 but at that moment i don't know how old you said you were 21 or 22 and and you're facing so long yeah, no i was 20 i was 20 years old so uh no it was fucked up bro i mean i felt uh i mean i'm american so i felt like fucked up like why are you attacking me like i'm not doing anything that a whole bunch of other people i knew were doing you know, mm-hmm. I just had this high, you know, whatever the circumstances of my case, the timing or whatever, that's what, you know, a lot of shit in life, it's like stuff happens in a vacuum. It's all timing, right? Wrong place, wrong time, whatever. But uh, yeah, I felt betrayed. I always tell people it was like that, you know, Jimi Hendrix has a song, you know, Castles Made of Sand. I say Castles Made of Sand slip into the sea eventually. So I built up you know, this whole castle as me as this outlaw drug dealer, this counterculture, you know, want to be Jim Morrison, you know, whatever. And um, yeah, then they just like came crashing down, you know, and uh, yeah, so then I was, I was fucked up. Really, I had to reinvent myself. When something like that happens to you, you have to like go over like everything in your life, like, like, you know, like self-examination, like, like, what did I do wrong? Like, where, how did I fuck up this bad? So you, you do this whole like, uh, you know, like catalog and like with drug addiction and the war on drugs and drugs are bad and all the rhetoric and propaganda, you know, like even for my first couple of years, like they even had me believing like that I was wrong. So you, you know, felt for, like for, you for, had for... fucked up in high, like, yeah, because first, you know, they give you, you, they give you that time and, um, and you know, your parents are fucking, oh, like you fucked up. Everybody, society's like, you fucked up your friends. The government's telling you how awful you are. But then they, they give you these little uh, caveats too, like, oh, it was drug addiction. You need help with your drug addiction. You know, so you fall into like these little things, you know, and, and really for like two, three years, bro, like, you know, I was fucked up. You know, they, they punched me in my face, gave me 25 years. So uh, like, I started believing like their rhetoric. It took me almost like five years in where I actually like went back, you know, cause dude, like when I was 14, I was like, man, weed and, and, and psychedelics are good for people. I was like, this shit isn't, I remember, you know, cause this is like 1985, you know, all the Nancy uh, Reagan war on drugs, you know, cracking an egg in a pan. This is your brain on drugs. Like all that bullshit propaganda and rhetoric, you know, I, I, I was, I was, that was when I was like 14, like coming of age. So I'm like looking at this stuff and I, I always hung out with older kids. So um, I've seen like people I know like smoke weed, you know, I'm seeing people I know, you know, like do psychedelics or mushrooms, LSD. I'm seeing people I know like shoot heroin, do meth, cocaine. And I'm saying, I'm like, wait, I'm like, but wait, these people, how can weed or psychedelics be equal to heroin or cocaine when the people that do these that I know, I mean, they're just cool. They're just like regular people. They just like to get stoned or whatever, you know, escape, you know, see shit differently. These people that are doing coke and heroin, like they're turning into like serious criminals, like robbing people, guns, you know, drug addicts, stealing shit. I was like, you know, you can't compare. So I knew that from 14 yeah. on. So that's why I did what I did, you know, because, you know, I always believed 
you know, these substances were medicinal, spiritual, you know, therapeutical. And so I was like, well, if, if they're not going to supply them, I'm going to supply them, you know, because I'm like the, you know, I'm like the rebel with the cause. My cause was counterculture. My cause was these substances. I was like a psychedelic cannabis warrior. But then like, boom, when, you know, I had 25 years, but when I was only 22, so that kind of like shakes you to your core and you have to like, you know, like they almost convinced me that I was wrong, you know, but I bounced back, you know, just cooked me a couple years, you know, and now... Now I feel justified. You know, now I feel, I, now I know I wasn't, I wasn't a criminal. I was an activist. You know what I'm saying? I, I was a trailblazer. I was just ahead of my time. So, you know, yeah, I had to pay the price, but, but I can live with it because now, you know, I feel justified. Yeah. Okay. I was, I was right. It just took, you know, everybody else like 30 years to figure this out. You know, I knew it 30 years ago. Yeah. I mean, throughout history on so many different issues, we see these people, that have pushed it at, at the time and they face the consequences, but then society is caught up. And if, if the folks are still alive, they've been elevated to some kind of position or given a medal by the president, you know, 50 years later. Yeah. I mean, look at Nelson Mandela, prime example. I mean, they had to lock him away basically his whole life just because mm -hmm. he was trying to get freedom, you know, equal rights for, for, for the black people in that country. So, you know, it's whatever. But during that time, though, you know, like I said, I was a fugitive for two years, too. So in 91 and what I did, too, like like uh, I, I told the feds, right, I basically told the feds I would cooperate. Right. But then I took the fuck off. You know, I pled guilty. I, I made them believe that I would cooperate. I would help them. And then I, I, I took off. So I was supposed to be uh, they were like trying. They wanted me like some of my code defense were going to trial. So I was supposed to be a witness. Right. So what I did to in to inflict like maximum damage, like on the prosecutor's case. Like I waited like right before the trial, I was planning to take off the whole time, but I wanted them, you know, I was getting them lip service. I wanted them to think that I'm going to testify against my co-defense because I know if they're relying on me, they're not going to rely on other stuff. And it's going to help those guys who were really they're you know, they're my buddies. I mean, you know, some business partners, you know, one dude was a really good friend, other dude, just, you know, business partner. But yeah, uh, yeah so I took off. I took off right before, man, and fucking that's why that's why they came after me so bad. That's why they made me top 15 US Marshals list. That's why I got 25 years. You know, that's why they slammed me because I, I fucked them. You know what I'm saying? I, I made them believe something and then I fucking took off and I'm, I left them hanging. You know, the, the government and you know the government, the prosecutors, if you lead the government, I mean, you know, I mean you know, the government will kill you. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, they didn't kill me, but what was your they gave plan? Me 25 years. Yeah, what was your plan at the time then? Just live a live so, a life, live a life on the run, or, or or you know, as I mentioned earlier, get them to think that you had actually died. No, see, I wanted them to think I died because after seven years, Seth Ferrante could be declared legally dead if they didn't find a body, and then um and then once Seth Ferrante is declared legally dead, then that case is it's gone. You know what I'm saying? Because I'm declared dead, so they can't do anything. So. Yeah, that's what I wanted to do. I I wanted to, um, and I I'd already been I've been watching, like all the uh, like America's Most Wanted, um, like uh, Unsolved Mysteries, like anything to do with like fugitives and stuff. Like I I was like watching that stuff like crazy because I was studying it right, and then um, at the same time I was already getting fake ID. You know, I had all these books about how to get fake ID, like Reborn in the USA, Understanding U.S. Identifying Documents. Um, you know, uh, paper tripping one, two, and three. They just got all these books, 
the, through these companies, they were like subversive book companies uh, called like Palette and Press and uh, Lumponics. I think when they did the Patriot Act, I think they shut these companies down. You know, because it's the same companies. They're famous for, uh, you know, like they sold the Anarchist Cookbook. That was like the, that had the recipe for methamphetamine, you know, mm -hmm. which kind of got super popular on the internet, like in the late 90s. But they were the ones selling those books, like all through the 70s, 80s, 90s, up until internet time. But, um, yeah, so I knew how to get fake IDs. I, I I knew all this stuff. So I, I was basically just waiting, you know, and and, and, and I took off. And um, still, I, I was a kid. I, I was like 20, you know, and I and like I say, my whole kind of foundation was kind of shook. But, you know, at the same time, you know, I didn't want to testify against anybody. I didn't want to go to 20 to life. You know, I had a little bit of money. I didn't have a lot of money. So I was like, you know, I'm just going to fuck up. Plus, you know, I got jackrabbit in my blood. So, you know, I'm just not, you know. If, if I can run from the law, I'm going to run from the law. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to go like this here. You know, they got to catch me. So were you, were you sleeping in tents or what, 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 what were you doing when you were on, on the run? Motels? Give, give us a picture of, of what life was like. So when I first went out. Oh, another thing, though, about my suicide where uh, I fucked up. I staged my suicide in the Potomac River. Yeah. Right. And on the Potomac River, it's like a. Uh, it's like class five rapids, you know, and there's lots of rocks. So if you jump in at these certain points, you know, you, you can't swim. You're going to get smashed against the rocks and, you know, you're going to die, drown or whatever. So that's where I staged it. But the only thing I, I miscalculated, I staged it uh, on the wrong side of the dam, you know, because they have all these dams because you got like 14th Street Bridge and all these uh, bridges going into D.C. from Virginia. So like they calm the water down because I thought my body would float out to the Atlantic Ocean, but there are these dams you know, because the route, the, the river runs, you know, when it's coming down, it runs so uh, heavy. And um, yeah, so I did my suicide, staged my suicide on the wrong side of the dam. You know, here I am like 20 years old, think I'm like super smart, you know, like criminal <laughs> mastermind or whatever. And then this one little miscalculation. Yeah. So they dragged the river for two weeks and they always found bodies in this place where I did it. So they didn't find a body. So they declared my suicide a hoax. So there went my whole plan of, uh, you know, for two weeks, I thought I was good. And then you know thing crashing down but whatever you know shit happens so how did they catch you well like you know i had it i had i had a little money i didn't have a lot but i i went through it in probably like six to eight months um first i, I went right to california I was, I was staying with a girl i knew on a military base her parents lit her dad was like the commander of the military base so i went and stayed at her house on the military base um old girlfriend but then you know, whatever, that was only a couple months and we weren't getting along. So then I found a place down in Hollywood. I got an apartment in Hollywood, you know, just like went right on, you know, whatever, Craigslist or whatever. I don't know what they had back then. And uh, and I rented that. But then when I ran, I started running out of money. I was in L.A. and um, I wasn't working. I wasn't doing that. I was just kind of going out, you know, kind of recovering from this big thing, trauma that just happened to me. Um, You know, trying to cope with myself, cope with life, you know, figure shit out. And uh, then I ran out of money, so I, I just went back to what I knew. You know, I went back. Uh, I went to Texas. I, I hooked up with some uh, weed dealers I knew, like some Mexican guys that would bring it in that I was getting a lot of weight from before. Yeah, I just started. I started selling weed again, and eventually, I, I was in uh, Dallas, Texas, and I met some people there that were from St. Louis, Missouri. So we started running weed, you know, loads of weed, and I started making money again. I mean that lasted. It didn't last that long, so maybe lasted a little over a year. And then, and then, then I got caught again. I actually, 
when I got caught, just dropped off some weed with this guy and he was going to sell it. And I went to this Burger King parking lot and I was waiting for him to bring the money and I was smoking a joint. I don't know. There was like just whatever, some fucking cops, <laughs> you know, like it's just the worst luck. You know, they, they smell the weed or whatever. And this is like, you know, this is like 1993. So it's still like the height of the war on drugs. So like weed smell, it's like, you know, they act like it's heroin or something. So they came over and they searched us and we had more weed in the car. And um, yeah, I got arrested, but it wasn't my car. So the dude whose car it was, he took it, but they had matched up my, they took my prints, you know? So they released me because it was dude's car. And I said, I don't know what he has in his car. I'm just smoking a joint. So they let me go, but they printed me. And then, you know, once I had no idea I was top 15 U.S. Marshals. For some reason, the head prosecutor in Northern Virginia, Eastern District of Virginia, his name was uh, like Henry Hudson. Right when I became a fugitive, he moved from the Eastern District of Virginia to the prosecutor's office to the U.S. Marshals. He was like the second guy in the prosecutor's office, and he moved to the top guy in the U.S. Marshals office, same district, Eastern District of Virginia. And I guess this dude felt like I was a black mark on his uh, pro pro prosecutorial record or whatever, because I took off. When he went to the U.S. Marshals, he did all the paperwork, made me top 15. Yeah, so I had no idea, you know, because I was watching all those shows, and I would even see, like, serial killers, you know, where it would take, like, three, four months to match up their prints, right? So when they – I knew they printed me, but I figured I had a little bit of time. But they matched me up in three days because I was, like – you know, they had me, like, high up in the computer, top 15 U.S. Marshals just for – I mean, there's all types of violent – criminals and people that killed people and they had me like a first-time non-violent offender just because the prosecutors felt like i fucked them over you know by taking off so that just shows you how justice is in this country yeah that's wild i mean it's vindictive so would you have smoked that jay outside the burger king had you known you were so wanted because yeah the, the picture you've painted is of is of someone that's wanted to live in their own way and there's known that they're not causing any harm to others. And yeah, well, his, I, I knew I was wanted. has ended up on your side, really, hasn't it? Yeah. I knew I was wanted. To be honest, I could give a fuck. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to blatantly smoke and join in front of a cop. But, you know, they just kind of rolled up on us. So it was just like one of those situations. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And then, and then like, the dude, it was the other dude's car. And he told them they could search him. He told, they asked if they could search. He told them they could search. And he had some weed in there. He didn't have a lot, but I think he had like a half pound or something. And I'm like, why would you tell the cops to search your car when you don't have to? They'll get the dogs or whatever. But I'm saying, you know, make them fucking, you know, I'm not going to tell the cop. I'll search my car. Yeah. But a lot yeah. of people do that. They're just stupid, you know. But I don't know. Obviously, this dude, he wasn't an outlaw. So, you know, outlaws are a little different than citizens. Totally. Totally. And so then you end up in prison. What happened then? I, I know you, you, ended up doing a few degrees, you wrote a ton of books, you started a journalism website, but it, it took a while, as you were saying before, to, to get, get going. I, th I think you, you were smoking weed at first, but then eventually gave it up. I, I wonder if you tripped as well ever in prison. Yeah, yeah, I tripped a couple of times, not a lot. I don't know, tripping in prison is not cool because you get locked in a cell and, I don't know, just imagine being tripping on acid and being locked in your bathroom. You know what I'm yeah, saying? So, but, but I did... a feeling prospect. Although some of the cream yeah, yeah. Might, might be nice, you know, just to like, you know, massage or, or something like once it's all white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I used, to, I used to smoke weed all the time. I used to smuggle weed in through the visiting room. Kind of like when I first got in, I was angry. So like, I didn't really give a fuck. Plus I was young and um, I wasn't in like the, the highs, but I was like in the medium highs. So uh, 
you know, basically the most prison levels are like five levels. You know, you got like a minimum, a low, a medium, a high, and a, like a max. So I started out like what they call a level three, like a medium. So, um, and in a, you know, in, in the medium, they call it like a gladiator school. You know, like you got to fight. You know, in the, in the next level up, like a high, they say boys fight, men kill. But in the mediums, everybody fights. You know, these dudes get stabbed sometimes, but it's not, you know. In the, in the highs, like the penitentiaries where everybody got life and it's all like grown men, you know, they don't fight. They're just going to like stab you 60 times. You know, so it's a little different philosophy. In the mediums, you know, there's a lot of fist fights, a lot of young guys trying to prove each other. So, uh, you know, prove that they're a man and shit. So I kind of had to become a man behind these fences, behind this razor wire, you know, and um, with all these gangbangers and, and mafia people, you know, and, uh, you know, bank robbers, uh, you know, thugs, gun thugs, hoodlums. I was just like this kid from the suburbs. I came from like the deadhead culture, you know, that was kind of like my scene, the counterculture, you know, the hippies, the deadhead. So not mm -hmm. to say that I'm all this peace, fucking love, dude, whatever, you know, but that, that was kind of my scene that I gravitated to and um, where I sold drugs at. And yeah, so when you go in there, it's, it's just, there's not a lot of people like that. It's just a totally different scene, but I was always a good athlete. You know, I played sports. I always played sports. Um, you know, I'm not like a huge dude, but like I said, I'm like 6'1", 225. Uh, back then, you know, at whatever, 22, I was probably only like 185. But, you know, I got in there, I hit the weights, I started playing sports, you know, uh, fought when I had to, you know, tried to avoid, you know, situations. Um, I started doing the college courses first through the Bureau of Prisons, but then eventually, like, they, they abolished the funding for it. So I got about 24 credits, two semesters through the Bureau of Prisons, but then when they they banned, they abolished the uh, the funding because they were complaining that prisoners were getting college degrees with tax money or whatever. It was like some big thing they were running. People were running on that politicians. You think you'd want to rehab your prisoners, but you know, not in this country. After that, you know, I got, I got all A's, you know, and I kind of repaired my relationship with my parents. Mm. So, you know, because, you know, when I first got locked up, you know, I, I was, I was not, uh, you know, high on their list or whatever. They, they paid for correspondence courses. So I got, I got an associate's degree through uh, Penn state. Pennsylvania State University. I got a, a master's degree through uh, Iowa State University, or University of Iowa, and then I got my master's degree from California State. What all through the, all through correspondence. What were you studying? Most, just all writing. Mm -hmm. You know, when you do correspondence, there's kind of two avenues. You can kind of go like a humanities, literary, or you can do like a, a business. You know, because you 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 know through correspondence, it's all books and paper. So you don't got a lot of options. So, um, yeah, I went the humanities way and, uh, you know, like took through creative writing, you know, script writing, uh, journal, you know, article writing. You ended up effectively Vice's U.S. prison correspondent, writing a lot about drug policy, people that are inside unjustifiably and what life looked like inside, right? Yeah, so I started out, I mean, because I was, like, so angry, man. I got 25 years. I was, like, first time non-violent fair. How the fuck I get 25 years? There were, like, dudes that kill people in there had less time than me. So it was, like, crazy. Once I got in there, man, it was just, like, I had to do something. I had to let people know. You know, so I, I was trying to publicize my case. And I was taking all these article writing, journalism classes, and stuff like that. And I was writing about my case. And eventually, uh, I didn't write the article, but I got Rolling Stone covered my article, covered my case, like, in a, in a piece in, uh, like, 1997. 
once I had that little like uh, media success or whatever you want to call it from prison, I just like, I like doubled down, you know, I started like writing articles, people in there thought I was crazy. I would literally, all right. So the black market is like, they use stamps for money, like on the prison black market, right. You know, like books of stamps, cause you can buy them. You're allowed to buy like three books of stamps a week for like legal work or whatever. So people get those and they use them as money. Right. And most people buy that to like buy, buy, like if they buy like a large amount, cause you got like the bookies, you know, where all the stamps out, they'll have like hundreds of books. So they sell them for like a, you know, you can do like a send out, put money in other books. So most of the time when people do that, they get the stamps to buy drugs or to gamble. I was buying the stamps, like I was buying like a hundred books of stamps to use as stamps. Cause I would literally like do pitch letters and I would photocopy them and I would have like a stack, like a hundred letters, you know, and I'd send out like hundred, 200 letters a day. And I figured out this loophole where if you're in prison and you correspond with the media, you can send it legal mail. So they can't read it. Right. Cause you know, they read all your mail, all your correspondence. So I was putting all that and they, they just, everybody thought I was crazy. The staff thought I was crazy. You know, the inmates thought I was crazy. Cause I'm walking around with these big stacks of letters. Like I'm not like the only one, in the whole <laughs> fucking prison, like nobody else is doing this shit, you know? And um, people like couldn't figure me out, you know, cause I'm, you know, but I was trying to become a writer. I was trying to, reach out from inside. That's how I got the vice gig. That's how I got the slam stuff. You know, it's all just from sending letters out, but that's kind of how I, I, I formed my writing career. But really it came out of anger, you know, wanting people to see about my case and see how fucked up it was. And then it turned into like, you know, I, I can start writing about these other people's cases and you know, the injustice. And I started writing about the gangsters. I started making money. Like, dude, I was doing the column for vice, probably like, I don't know, late nineties, early two thousands. And uh, dude, they're paying me like eight fifty, bro. Like eight fifty for like twelve hundred words. You know what I'm saying? And this was like, yeah, I had a column. It was called "I'm Busted." I mean, that's good for journalism. I mean, now that's, everybody that's, knows. That's everything. good. That's pretty good for journalism, dude. I mean, yeah, you I'm can't make any money. Pay, in journalism I'm not even going to say how much Vice paid me for the last piece I wrote for them, and I did. Oh, I had to do a lot of work for that, man. Man, if you can get like three hundred bucks now, you're lucky. But uh, <laughs> I, I know that's why I don't do it no I more. I think it's, it's more than either. that. To be fair, I think it's more than uh, that, but still. Yeah. No, I got, I got, even when I got out, I, I was making a lot of money in journalism, but like the last two, three years, like just for freelancers, they, they didn't want to offer as much and not as much print, you know, cause you always make more money for print. But like I say, I was, I was making that print money in prison. I was like living like a king, like people, you know, you got like 500 bucks a month in prison. Like you can live good, you know, cause most people li live like on 25 bucks a month or something. And then once I started getting the recognition, really, it was more the recognition for me. I mean, the money was cool, but, you know, it was more the recognition, but I was also getting paid. You know, that's kind of what drove me. And then, like, eventually, I started the books, 2005. I put out, uh, you know, I started I started the blog. You know, I got in, like, when blogs became popular. So I started doing, like, all this prison. And it's interesting and I remember that the, that the American authorities give folks... I guess enough space to be able to do that. I don't know. Man, I got locked up a lot for writing, dude. For real. I got locked up. I got, yeah, they would like lock me up in a shoe. All right, you're on the prison yard. Then they got the special housing unit. So they call that the hole. Yeah. Right? So yeah, you I do any it, violations. I've seen it in the movies. Yeah. So if you do any violations on the prison yard, the compound, they put you in the hole. So, um, dude, I got put in a hole for my writing probably like 20 times. Like I would battle them, dude. I got lucky. They, I was just writing it. They didn't want me to write. They didn't want me to write. What were you? What, but so see, what were you exactly saying in your stories? Were you criticizing the specific prison sometimes, or what? Yeah, I was. I, I, I Well, I used to. Uh, I used to write about how drugs were smuggled in. 
<laughs> but I would never do it. I would never say how it was happening in the institution I was in. I would say how it happened in an institution I was at before, or I would say how somebody that was at a different institution told me how they did it. You know what I'm saying? And a lot of times it was shit that got busted anyhow. So it was like, you know, it got busted. It's like common knowledge or whatever. But when whatever prison I was in, the prison administrators would think, because I wouldn't make it seem like it was in the past. I'd make it seem like it was going on right now. They have these guys in there. They're called, I don't know, like special investigation services. And they do like, they're the ones that can like arrest the warden, you know, the one who runs the prison. They can go, but they investigate the prisoners. And um, yeah, they used to, they used to tell me, right. They'd lock me up and I'd be like, what the fuck, man? And they'd be like, oh, you did this article. The, the, the people in the central office didn't like it. You know, shit runs downhill. So they would just like lock me up for like 30 days because they could put you under investigation for 30 days for anything, you know, before they have to start justifying, you know, keeping you locked up. So they would keep me here locked up sometimes 30, 60. The most I did, I did six months right once. But when I was in there six months, right, I, I didn't let them beat me because, uh, you know, I would write books. While I was in there, you don't have nothing else to do. And yeah, check they, this out though. So they put they they put you in the they put you in the hole for the article, so then you just crack on with the book, you motherfucker. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but check this out, how I would do it, right? All right, so you don't got no computer, you don't got no shit like that. You you got like whatever, lucky, whatever paper you can get, and then they give you these little. It's a little pencil like this big, right? But it's not even a hard pencil because they don't won't give you a hard one because they think you'll stab somebody. So it's like a little rubber wobbly pencil, bro. It's like, dude, try writing. Like I'm, I have literally wrote 40 to 60,000 words with a little fucking wobbly pencil, bro. You know, then I would have to go out back out on the compound. When I got back on the compound, I would type it. But sometimes I, it would be hard to even decipher my own writing. So I would have to like rewrite it on the spot. This is some determination. You, you wouldn't let them get you down or, or or did you did were there moments where there were there a day here and there where you were just like fuck i am fuck oh yeah i'm i'm human bro i got doubts to this day i got doubts all the time i mean i think second guessing and doubting yourself i think that's like a human condition bro i mean you know we we try not to but i don't care that even the most successful person the biggest people they they have moments of self doubt. That's just part of the human condition. So yeah, I I definitely had that. Yeah, I mean we live we're, we're supposed to live in a, in a perpetual state of suffering, or so they say. But if you're literally in the hole for writing, and then they've just given you a wobbly pencil, that's frustrating. But you know you've come. Oh you, yeah, yeah. But you, just gotta, you know that's what I would do. You know, look in in prison, some people like channel their anger, or they just take drugs, you know, they start heroin. Cause you can get heroin, you can get everything in there. You know, it's just more expensive for little or amounts. Some people, they, they are so angry about their life or their sentence. You know, they do heroin. Some people are so angry. They go around hurting other people. I was the type of dude. I channeled my anger into my work. Cause you know, I'm, I'm in prison. What it doesn't, you know, you got to keep a certain reputation there. So people won't fuck with you or try to steal your shit. But I didn't need to invest any time in, in anything. You know, I was not a, career prison gangster you know i was i didn't even consider myself a criminal really i was an outlaw i broke laws that i thought were wrong you know i had no intention on you know remaining in crime or being a criminal organization or trying to enhance myself into some other criminal criminal stratosphere while i was in prison which a lot of people in prison that's what they're trying to do i kind of kept to myself you know and i just did my time and like i channeled everything into my writing i channeled everything into my college courses i channeled everything into into my workouts 
you know, and, and then I played sports. So that was kind of like, you know, and I, you got to have a job in there. So I worked, but usually whatever job I had, I was like the one, cause I was responsible, you know, and I could talk to the cops. So I would be the one like, and the prisoners gave me respect. So I'd be in like in a position, like they call it like a clerk, but really like you run the shit for the cops, you know, like maybe a cleaning, like compound cleaning and recreation, you know, maybe you do their books or some stuff, you know, you do the orders. I always had a job like that also because I was a writer so I always wanted access to a nice typewriter, you know what I'm saying? Or word processor. So I would always get a job like that. So I had access so I could do my stuff on a word processor because the typewriters they had in there, do they have like those 1950 typewriters? Like people laugh at me to the day, to this day. Cause like when I, when I hit the keys, I'm like super heavy, you know, like you can hear me. Like if I'm typing next to you on my MacBook, you'll be like, damn, what the fuck is going on over there? Cause I learned to type on these 1950 typewriters. Like where you, really got to hit it you know what i'm saying so i'm like my fingers are super heavy-handed but you know that, that that's just prison that's prison that's, for you yeah and and so yeah you originally got the rolling stone article which i imagine was you know somewhat sympathetic to your cause and and then as we, as we were saying you got the vice column going and the books so you're gaining respect obviously you're getting bylines out there on the outside world you said on the inside you're also you know, got the respect of your other prisoners. But I imagine that some folks, you know, when they see people shining like that, it, it makes them angry as well, right? I had a little stuff where, where, where dudes would try to say, like, my writing, like, they try to make it out like I'm snitching on something. I, I would tell the dudes, you know, the mid-90s is when gangster rap was really big. I was writing about drug smuggling and, and, and prison basketball and criminal justice reform and people's cases that were fucked up. But I was also writing about gangsters, right? So a lot of dudes try to tell me, like, I'm telling stories. It should stay here or stay there. But I used to tell them, I'd be like, well, all these rappers opened it up, bro. Because all these, you know, all the rappers were name dropping all the drug dealers. They were putting the street legends that I started writing about into the lyrical lore of, of hip hop. You know, they were saying their name. They were saying where they were from. And like I said, I was locked up with a lot of these dudes. So that's why I started writing about these dudes, because I, I heard about them. I got to know some of them and then, you know, I started, I started writing the vice thing. I also started writing for Don Diva and feds. Those were like the street mags, you know, about like the gangsters and stuff. And then eventually I, I started writing like about the mafia dudes, you know, cause I was locked up with all these dudes. You know, you can't just, you know, it's not like mainstream journalism. I want to write, you know, you got to work your way in with these people, you know, and some people, they would say, you know, don't write about me. So you got to respect that, you know? And, and I also tell people too, as like, I come from a different school of journalism. Like, yeah, you know, I, I've referred to myself in the past as gonzo journalism or whatever, but, you know, cause I'm a big Hunter S. Thompson fan, but really what I do is, is even more different than, than him. Cause think I was in prison writing about interviewing and writing about people and I'm in prison with them, bro. Like think, like you hear all the time, people don't like the way they're portrayed. People say they get misquoted by journalists or the media. Think if that happened to me in there, what do you think they would have done? And it's different. If I misquoted. You can't, you can't just call you can't just call up the editor and be like, "Yo, we need to just you know change this line real quick." And then, by the grace of God, within five minutes, it's, it's you know tweaked. And more, it was print. It was print more print then. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you know now now everything's pretty much online, but there. You know, you got to think like 99, early 2000, it was still half and half. The online was overtaking the print, but the print still had a presence. 
You know, so I, did, you ever, seen, did you ever misquote? Did you, did you ever misquote one of these gangsters? No, I never did. I made sure I didn't. You know, I had some disputes with people after about about different things or, or whatever. You know, I won't, I won't get into it. But you know, not everybody's happy with everything. And sometimes at a certain time, people are happy with stuff, and then later on, they're not happy with mm-hmm. it. But you yeah. know, and they want you to try to change something. But it's like it's like already out, bro. I'm not going to untake it out. You know what I'm saying? It's already out there. So does one of these stories mm-hmm. stick in the mind that you covered, or or maybe like a dispute that you had after one of them? Well, when I, I was doing the Supreme team book, you know, I was with Supreme. So I wrote about Supreme uh, a couple times in the Supreme team for Don Diva. And, uh, you know, he was finding that murder ink case. So, um, you know, I was trying to help him. I liked Supreme. Supreme was a good dude. And so, you know, I told him I was going to do the book and, and he basically gave me, he gave me his blessing. He said, okay. He said, you know, just let me see it, you know, whatever. Because he knows I'm going to tell the real story. I'm not going to tell the prosecutor story. I'm not going to tell the uh, mainstream news media story. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, you know, there it's a lot, it's, it's, it's a lot of black and white, but really it's, there's a lot of gray area in life. You know what I'm saying? Not everything is black or white. There's a lot of gray areas. So, you know, that's what I was trying to show with him because the prosecutors in the mainstream media, the mainstream media just repeats what the prosecutor says. So, you know, there, there, there's a lot of room in these stories to, to show because these people are, they're people too. You know what I'm saying? Even a gangster person, you know, it doesn't matter if you're, you know, black, brown, red, whatever, white. But, um, yeah, so right after, you know, I was with him, they took him back for that murder ink case. He got life and they put him in the ADX, you know, like the Supermax, right? Where that's like no contact, basically. And he was in there for like 18 months or two years. And during that time, I had finished the book and I was ready to put it out. But I couldn't get to him. They, you know, I couldn't even people from the outside could not get to him because you have like limited correspondence and stuff like that in the Supermax. So I started reaching out to some of the other people on the team under him, like his nephew and some other people. And, you know, I guess he never he hadn't seen them, so he never told him about me or what I'm doing. But I was just trying to say, hey, you know, he said I could do this, but uh, I can't get to him right now because he's an ADX. You guys know, you know, just check this out, man. I'm just trying to have somebody like, OK, this or whatever, say it's cool. You know, I don't want to have no beef. And then like some of these dudes write me back. They're like, oh, you who are you? You got no permission to write us, blah, 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 blah. So like I literally had to wait until like fucking, I think almost like six months until Supreme like got out and could communicate with people and say it was okay for me to fucking put this out. Wow, so so you know? tell, tell us a bit about his case. Was, was he wrongfully convicted? He wrongfully. got a murder for, yeah, he got a murder for hire. So, uh, I mean, it's pretty much all, all circumstantial, you know, evidence. I think the case that he's in, you know, a lot of these dudes with these big names, you know, this goes back to like the mafia dudes and Al Capone. Um, you know, they may want them for this or they may want them for this, but they just get them for whatever they can. Like, you know, they got Al Capone for like taxes. So I don't know. I just think it's a, it's it's really flimsy case. I don't think he should be convicted. I think he was convicted because of his name and, and, and who he was. I mean, he, he was really on the street. He was making films, you know. Uh, yeah, maybe he had a fucking toe or something in, in, in the criminal underworld. But, you know, he wasn't like in gross going around ordering murders and shit like that. You know, whatever. Just trying to make money. You know, especially as you're, you know, he's trying to build a film career, you know, out of prison, you know, but he had a lot of stuff going for him. So when they brought that case and the whole Murder, Inc., like Murder, Inc., you know, Irvin Chris Gotti got acquitted, you know, because the, the, the whole case was basically a fabrication. So the whole case started out saying Supreme funded Murder, Inc. with drug money. But then it turned in to like, you know, some people got murdered. So they try to connect these murders 
you know, because if you get a murder, that's a longer sentence, whatever. So they connected some murders to the case. And they say, like, Supreme didn't do them, but they say, you know, he ordered them or whatever, you know, and then uh, they were trying to connect that to the Murder, Inc. and Chris and Irv Gotti and the rappers who were just like entertainers, you know, but at the time when this case came about, Supreme was more with the, the rappers. So he was more about the image than the reality, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, and, and for them, that, they had a real gangster, an ex-gangster, you know, who did prison time riding with them. So that was kind of like the situation. But, uh, you know, they're rapping about murder. They're doing this. So, you know, what's law enforcement do? They're going to correct, connect murders. You know, who knows if, if, he, if he's responsible for it or not. I, I don't know. But, it, you know, looking at the fact that it's pretty flimsy, you know, they don't have any hard evidence. They just have corrobor corroborator, you know, cooperator testimony, corroborators, you know, circumstantial evidence here. So that's what he's actually in on now. I mean, but, you know, he'll tell you straight. He'll tell you straight out that, you know, yeah, I've always been a hustler. But he goes, I, you know, he says I've never been in that part of the game, like the murder part of it. He's, he goes, I'm a hustler. Yep. So, you know, but I, I like Supreme, man. Real classy dude. You know, we used to walk around on the compound when I was in uh, SCI Gilmer with him from 2004, 2006. And we would walk around on the compound and, um, you know, they have moves. So you might have like a five-minute inbound move, five-minute outbound move to like go to recreation, you know, uh, library, you know, um, you know, religion, you know, different uh, places on the compound. And we would go and and like dudes were always coming up to him because he was like infamous. Everybody knew who he was. It was Supreme from Supreme Team from Queens, right? Everybody knew who he was. And uh, dudes would come up to him because he was connected with Murder, Inc., you know, and they would try to like rap for him or something. They'd be like, oh, let me give you 16 bars. And he would always listen stuff. And like some of these dudes, you know, I, I didn't have a very high opinion of them. I mean, they were just like, you know, crackheads or whatever. I'm mean, not like they were smoking crack right there. But uh, I, I was like, why why you give all these crackhead dudes like time? Why you give them your time? And, and he's like, well, sometimes you can learn a lot from a dummy. So super wise dude, like, you know, he didn't talk a lot. Very classy dude. More like a godfather type of dude, you know? That's the type, you know, that's why he had, you know, that's why all these uh, alpha male killers would listen to him or were under him or, or respected him, you know, because, you know, for, for his mind and, and his fairness and his ability, you know, to squash. But he was the type of dude, like, he was he was a, he would squash drama. He would squash beasts. He wasn't, you know, there's certain types of dudes, like, they amp that stuff up, you know, like, they put fuel on the fire, like, they create and court chaos, and Supreme wasn't like, like if you're a problem, he'll go try to dead it. You know, he'll try to make sure so there's no violence. So I don't know, just like, you know, from seeing him in prison like that. Yeah. And I guess, yeah, you were hesitant to really lift the lid on all the details without his explicit consent and, and the knowledge that he told all his family and his friends and, and everyone that, you know, it was cool for you to show all the details of the case. And yeah, it's, it, you, you obviously stumbled upon just an incredible stream of contacts and content inside. And it was at the time that you were really coming up as a writer. So yeah, obviously you need some balls to do it, but yeah. You hey, did I, 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 I always tell other writers this. So like, look, okay. Cause you know, you're doing a piece and you need quotes and you need this person, you need this person. Dude, I could literally like, I'm right. I'm, you know, cause I'm coming on all crime stuff, gangs, whatever, drug gangs. So I'll be like, oh, boom, I'm doing this piece on, you know, so-and-so, New York City, Brooklyn. I'll be like, man, who's from Brooklyn? I'll be like, oh, so-and-so's from Brooklyn, blah, I'm here, blah, blah, blah. And I go talk to him, and dude, like, knows everything, all the neighborhood stuff. Even though if that wasn't his case, 
Or they would even tell me like, oh, that's so, 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 so codefinant. He's over there. <laughs> so it's like, I just got, you got crazy sources, bro, for like crime stuff. It's the, you everywhere. And I started doing, at the end, I started doing these pieces for Vice where it was like reaction pieces. So it'd be like, you know, something that Donald Trump does or, you know, somebody, you know, some famous person gets convicted and is going to go to prison. So, uh, you know, what can they expect? So I would go and talk to the prisoner. I would just talk to prisoners. They'd give me quotes and I fucking write the piece and I put it right on the, uh, they had the email core system. It was called a uh, core link. And I would like mail it, you know, like right to the editors, just like that. I used to use that email system as a, a word processor too, because you could save stuff. Mm -hmm. And and so eventually, I guess, yeah, you're saying that was when it was coming to the end. You started getting offered parole. Yeah, well, I got I got probation, not parole. So they do probation. So in the feds, you got to do eighty five percent of your time. I got a little time off. I got ten months off for a drug program. They locked me up too for writing articles critical of the, <laughs> of the drug programs. Slight, slightly ironic, but, but as you're explaining all of this, you're um, coughing from the bong. Yeah, yeah, no, that's what I do. Hey, even inside, dude, you know how I wrote Mountain Dew and marijuana. It was a secret to my success: Mountain Dew and marijuana. But uh, still to this day, but... Yeah, that's a heady comp. So, you know, that's kind of how I was doing it. But when I started getting towards the end of my bid, you know, and I was always doing the writing. And to me, you know, writing for film, that's the highest evolution of a writer. I mean, not only is that what you get paid the most, but, you know, basically, you know, look at writers, you know, those are the most admired writers, the ones that are doing film, because it has the biggest, you know, the biggest platform, the biggest reach, especially if you write like a big hit movie. So as a writer... You know, I decided, you know, this is probably like 10 years in or something, you know, as I started writing and I, I had some success and I was good at it and, and I was getting some recognition. I was like, well, the next step for me, you know, I want to make films. Obviously, I can't make films while I'm in there. But I started uh, like my master's degree. I did like all film stuff, you know, like all reading, like film books, writing, writing scripts. I already had the publishing house. And, you know, I published a lot of books, you know, thousands of articles. You know, I did a lot of true crime stuff for penthouse real crime which was a uk magazine i did a lot of stuff for them and um i was just doing like features like all all through the two, 2000 to 2010 i was doing like crazy fucking features man from from prison but i still i i formed this thing in my head like i'm gonna get out and make films and um yeah that's what i did i i got out so when i first got out i mean i, I worked as a national journalist hardcore my first five years so i got out 2015 so probably like two, 2015 to 2020, like, like I, I was, I was like a, a national freelance jur journalist, like true crime, prison reform. But I used to do like any, any, anything like, like drug or crime, like movie, book, whatever. And I did like a q and I became like the Q&A king. It was just, Q&As are easy, you know, it doesn't take as long. You just interview people, chop it up, write an intro. So that, that kind of became my thing, right? And uh, yeah, especially if you can use the transcription software as well, dude. Oh yeah, that's all I did. And, I and sometimes they pay you the same. They pay you the same for one of those one of those one Q and A with one interview. Then some piece you've had to interview like ten dudes and traveled for. Yeah, that's. I started doing like new product stuff, bro. Like new books, new films. Right. That's that's all I got at the end. That's all I was doing. I would still do like some big true crime features, but even they they started they weren't paying enough, man. They started, you know, like dude in prison. I was getting paid like fucking four or five grand from sometime for like a four thousand word feature. While I was in prison, then I got out and they want to pay me like two or three grand, you know, it went down to like two grand or 1500. I was like, man, the money just dried up really quick. But I started doing film stuff. So um, I'm already doing some local film stuff, you know, kind of getting my feet wet. And 
then I met I met Sean Reck. He had just directed in his studio, Transition Studios, put out this movie, A Murder in the Park. It was on Showtime. So, um, you know, some publicists sent it to me because I was hooked up with all the publicists back then. And, uh, yeah, and I contacted him, and I, and I did an interview. And um, I don't even think Vice didn't even want it. So it ended up Vice didn't even want it. Like, they gave me a kill fee for it. So they didn't even run it. But I met the dude. And he had just had success with that. And he was kind of he, looking for his next thing. He had done like 200 Crime Stopper shows for the networks, won like uh, eight regional, no, eight or nine regional Emmys in Ohio. So I knew this dude knew how to make, he was a phenomenal filmmaker, right? And I was just a writer. I could tell stories, but I need to learn the nuts and bolts. This dude had a studio and everything. I pitched him the, the, the white boy, the white boy Rick story. And um, he had heard about it before because he knew, you know, at that same time, they had just announced the Matthew McConaughey movie. So he was and, like this FBI uh, informant and cocaine kingpin, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so he jumped on it because I, I, I'd written extensively about Rick and I've been writing him. You know, we, when we were both in, we were writing back and forth, and I'd wrote a bunch of articles about him. I think I wrote an article in 2012 about his case that was on a fix that uh, like went viral. His story just keep kept coming up, kept coming up. I just reignited it, you know, a couple times, and um, I started writing him. And really, Rick, I wanted to write him for my Street Legends book. So, you know, I started doing these Street Legends, like these gangster books, which were basically like, you know, Billy the Kid type, you know, glorifying, romanticizing, you know, like the 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 um, gangsters that were kind of lionized in, uh, you know, hip hop. Yeah. In, and, in you, and you did a graphic novel too, right? On your own story, like Confessions of a, of a College King. Yeah, Confessions of a, a College Kingpin. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's about my own story. That's like a comic book. Never really sold, though. I, I don't know. Yeah, man, I went to do film. So I got with Sean Rick, and we did we did the White Boy film. And all my film stuff has basically came from that. He uh, took me under his wing. Um, I'm basically like his protege. You know, he was my mentor. He taught me how to make a documentary. Like, I'm the White Boy. Like, he brought me all the way through. Like, from, from filming, you know, uh, how much stuff costs, you know, budgets, financing, the whole editing process, the whole finishing process. You know, it it was really, it was like, it was like film school, you know, and it was like over 18 months, you know, not constant, but, you know, off and on. And so I learned from like a, a nine-time uh, Emmy-winning director. Yeah, you know, and, ended, and it ended director. up on, on, on Netflix too, right? So Yeah, it ended up on Netflix. I don't so... know, don't know about this, this story. Do you want to just like quickly sum it up? The, like the, the... Yeah, so Rick, um, so Rick started working as an informant in the east side of Detroit when he was like 14 and this came about because his dad used to buy guns at gun shows and bring them back to the hood and sell them. And they were like the only white people left in the hood because like his Rick's grandparents, like, you know, refused to leave, you know? So they were like some of the only white families left on the East side. And his dad would buy these guns at gun shows. He would bring them back to the hood. He would sell them to like the, the local black, you know, the local black gangsters or whatever. And then he would dime them out to the cops. So he would get paid twice. That was like what he did. So this was what Rick came, Rick came up like this. Right. And then like in the mid eighties, the cops, you know, cause that's when the crack era started. So, you know, you got all these dudes making a lot of money, a lot more murders. So the, 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 the cops, the law enforcement people, you know, um, were meeting with Rick's dad and he used to bring his son to the meetings and, you know, they're asking him, like, who 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 controls this block? Who controls this block? Who can, you know, Rick's dad doesn't know any of this stuff. 
he just sells these guys guns. He's not in the street. But Rick is a teenager. Rick is out there playing basketball in the neighborhood with all the other, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16-year-olds. And they know what's up. So he knows what's up. So he starts giving the information that the that the feds are asking. And they're taking the information down, but they're putting it under the dad's informant number. You know? And eventually what they started doing with Rick is uh, as he got a little older, they actually started using him, like sending him out. Like they made him into a drug dealer, like gave him money and sent him, you know, to make case with this information that he gave him. So basically what they did, they, they pimped out this young white kid, made him into a drug dealer, made a big bust on the court Curry organization, you know, because of his, his information. And then, uh, and then just like, hung him out to dry, you know, like they didn't like, you know, deprogram him or uh, make him go through like debriefings or like you just put a 14 year old kid into an undercover situation for like two and a half years. And he got shot one time too. Oh my God. And like nothing, they, then they just cut him loose. Like, you know, cause in that case, the Curry case, they had to plead out in that case because it came to light that the they were you the feds were using an underage informant. You know, there were some questions about it. So they had to plead out. Like they had these dudes, but they had to plead out because they didn't do stuff the right way. They used you can't use an underage informant. That's illegal, you know, and through the dad's informant number. So that was like coming to light. So they let these dudes plead out to try to bury it and then to try to they disassociate themselves with Rick. So, you know, that won't affect, you know put the black mark on them for doing it, you know? And then, uh, yeah, he was just a kid. So he just got rid of Johnny Curry. So he kind of, and everybody thought he was Johnny Curry's protege. So he kind of just filled the vacuum and, and he knew some people in Miami to get the Coke from. So, so he just started, you know, but he, he had a little short run too. And then he got busted with like eight kilos when he was like 17 and they gave him a life sentence and they buried him, you know, because, uh, you know, because he, 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 um, you know, he was a threat and, and he did, he did, he, he told more about the corruption for law enforcement and stuff in Detroit to the feds, like the local. So, you know, the Detroit administration and law enforcement and, you know, in law enforcement in general were not happy. So they just like kind of buried him. Wow. You know, and yeah, yeah he did. These are, uh, these, are, these are vitally important stories really that reveal the moral dilemmas and, and, well bankruptcy really of the, of the whole war on drugs yeah yeah so that one's still on netflix right now and yeah and then, i've, I've uh, seen your latest one you sent me you sent me a streamer a couple of months ago the secret history of the lsd trade yeah i thought yeah, that's a, great, uh, a real full frontal attack and i guess yeah it's it sort of your kind of you're here now lsd looks like it's going to be approved, you know, not maybe not soon, but in, in a number of years for medicinal use. Well, mushrooms, yeah, mushrooms are coming. So some psychedelics, you know, LSD is going to probably take, you know, LSD is a little stronger. But yeah, the, so the, so I got this, it's psychedelic revolution series. So the first, it's going to be 10 episodes eventually, but the first story arc is the, the secret history of the LSD trade. So that's what we put out the episode one. We showed it at, uh, the MAPS conference in Denver in June. Um, we showed it again at Wonderland. And um, now we put it out in November 14th. So it's only it's only been out not even two weeks. It's on Amazon. But with this first episode, it's called The Genesis. It looks all the way from the discovery of LSD with Albert Hoffman, you know, in the famous uh, bicycle ride. 
and it goes all the way up to like when LSD was made illegal, you know, and, and the outlaws for and the outlaw chemists had to go underground. So it kind of covers that, you know, and it, it talks about Hoffman, it talks about Ken Kesey, the married pranksters, you know, it talks about Owsley Stanley, who who was mm. a chemist, you know, also Grateful Dead sound man. It talks about Tim Leary, you know, obviously, you know, who's one of the you know prominent uh LSD advocates in the world at that time. And um it covers the uh the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. So, you know, kind of looks at all those stories, you know, in 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 a chronological timeline, you know, and and, and Dude, I just interviewed like the who's who of, of, of the psychedelic world. Like everybody I asked, I got Hamilton Morris. I did an interview with Hamilton Morris. I interviewed Carolyn Mountain Girl Garcia. You know, she's like a star on the film. Uh, Leonard Picard, you know, who was the, the, the Kansas Missile Silo, you know, yeah. alleged chemist. You know, Mountain Girl who was had a had a baby with Ken Kesey and was a married prankster and was married to Jerry Garcia and had more kids. So she's like basically like the psychedelic high priestess, you know, she's been there since the jump. And then, uh, yeah, Roni Stanley, who was Owsley Stanley's partner and used to work in the labs, you know, with, with, with Owsley, you know, she, she was like a, a you know, assistant chemist. I'd love, uh, I'd love to chat to Leonard one day. I, I read that old story in Rolling Stone. He's lived, lived, lived life. And, but then he spent 20 years in prison. You know, they found yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he was moving, that massive LSD lab from this like crazy dude's like airport hangar. And he says he wasn't actually using it at that time, but then they stuck it on him. And I guess his association with, with the other dude who, who like kind of owned the hangar, I can't remember his name. No, no, definitely. You know, and, and what they, what they said he did, you know, like he supposedly, you know, allegedly, you know, he was supplying the whole world with acid from there. You know, I, I don't know. I, I, I know that law enforcement exaggerates. So, you know, if that's true or, or not true, but you know, it's crazy. We're going to cover Leonard's story in this episode two of the, the secret history of the LSD trade. Um, we're going, we're finishing the Owsley story. We're finishing the brotherhood story. We're going into an LSD lab and we're, we're telling Leonard's story. So we actually just shot, like we went to Kansas and we shot that missile silo. We, we contacted like the owners. Oh, nice. We shot from the outside. We took drone shots. They let us come in. You know, we had to pay him. You know, we paid him. You can give him like 400 bucks, I think four or 500 bucks. But, uh, yeah, so we shot that. So we're gonna have that imagery, you know, in 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 this new this new episode. Yeah, but I I love Litter's story, and you know, I I I started writing Litter. Me and Litter used to write back and forth when we were both in prison. So I've had a relationship with Litter for probably like fifteen years. And, you know, obviously, I, I you know I met him. I've met him since he's been out. Um, but uh, yeah, I, just another dude. The dude is like a, a, you know, I say he's like Merlin. He's like Merlin the magician. And so how does it feel like life now? You've been on the outside for seven or eight years now. I mean, are you happier? Um, I'm definitely happier, man. Because, I mean, you know, like if I want to go to the store, I can go to the store. It doesn't matter what time it is. You know, in prison, you can't do that. I can take a shower or a bath whenever I feel like it. You know, in prison, you know, I can move whenever I feel like it. So, you know, um, yeah, definitely happier. But, um, yeah, still driven. So I've been out eight years. So... I had this crazy idea that I was going to make everything happen like within two years, like when I got out, you know, and, it, and I'm still getting to where I want to be. I'm not to where I want to be yet. I'm getting there, man. It, it's a slow process, but that's like life. You know, sometimes you got to take uh, two steps backwards to take one step forward. You know, that's just how life is. So I'm still super driven. I'm putting out a lot of stuff, you know, like just this year, I, I released a nightlife. 
on Amazon, I released Dopeman, America's First Drug Cartel. That's about the mafia and heroin. That one's doing really well. And I released this, uh, you know, first episode of Psychedelic Revolution, The Secret History of the LSD Trade. I got this other one coming called The Tortured Mind, um, The Realities of Post-Incarceration Syndrome, where I look at somebody's story and I, and, and I show, you know, because like a lot of these prisons, man, they like dude could be locked in a hole for like 10 years in, in like a system like California, and then they just let him out. You know, or people come out of prison, like they, they don't do nothing. They give you like, here's $200 and a bus ticket. The way you have to be in prison, like it's a different mentality to survive, man. You've got to like change. So, you you know, everybody, you need some way to decompress or, you know, to take off that mask. You know, not everybody can just do it automatically. You know, so um, that's what this this film, A Tortured Mind, is about. You know, so it's about this dude, like, I mean, he went to prison. And, you know, he had maybe a little mental issues, a little drug addiction, but then all the violence and stuff he witnessed in eight years of prison, it just exacerbated everything. So then when he came out, he's just like a complete mess. Like, he can't stop drugs. His fucking mental illness is off, off the charts. So it's like, you know, like, he just went to prison and they grinded him up and he came out, like, like totally more fucked up. And then, you know, um, not to give away the uh, the film, but, uh, yeah, he's dead. He's dead now, bro. He OD'd. You know what I'm saying? While I was making the film. Oh my god what happened he od i mean he was a, you know his drug addiction was like he, he'd get clean and sober and then you know it would last sometimes like three four months and then you know and eventually he got the uh like a lot of these people that take pills you know he got the wrong fucking pill that had too much fentanyl in it oh my god you know, like a lot of people die because they right, take so. these pills. They, yeah, they don't know how much fentanyl. So, you know, at, at the time I was hoping I, I had a successful ending to the story. You know, I wanted to see him like, you know, taking care of his kids, like rehabbed and all that. But, you know, it didn't happen. So now it's a, just, just a, a, you know, it's a cautionary tale. You know, hopefully, hopefully it can make an impact. So, you know, other people can get help they need as they're coming out of prison. Because you can't just let people out. You can't pe let people out. You got to give them some type of uh, mental evaluation, man. Because yeah. that prison could change you. Being locked in those cells, witnessing mm -hmm. the violence, that could change you, man. What did it change in you? For me, I just, I don't know. I, I'd say I'm really compartmentalized. I'm real secretive. Uh, you know, other than my work, I don't like people to know anything about me. You know, if I don't share it, I don't know. I just think I, I'm, I'm more private. I don't know. I think it may probably make, makes me, I'm paranoid. I'm probably paranoid. I'm sure, I'm sure I'm super manipulative. Yeah, so... I mean, that's what it did to me. It's it's like how you got to survive in there. Like you put in this mask and, uh, you know, they have all these ideals and they talk about respect and honor and stuff like that, but it's all twisted, man. It's all twisted. You know, most important thing is there, you know, there's like, you know, you're not a snitch or, you know, you're not a pedophile or you're not a woman beater. You know, th those are things like if you're any of those, you can get fucked up. So, uh, yeah, but I don't know. I think, I think in some ways, it, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty calm in like situations that other people won't be, wouldn't be calm, you know, because of, because of yeah. being in prison. And so um, I don't get excited easy, you know? Mm -hmm. And plus, I, I I don't know. I can't, uh, I, I won't say, I don't, I don't express emotion because you know, there, you know, so that's like stuff like, you know, in there you don't express emotion. The only emotion you can express is anger. Yeah. Cause you're in this you high masculine, masculine. Yeah. Life. Yeah. Yeah space yeah. and, and you said that ob obviously you didn't have to tell me it's not the ideal set and setting for a trip but i, I wonder if you've mm -hmm. you know done much work with psychedelics since your release oh yeah 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 i, I uh you know i microdose mushrooms a lot 
you know, I get like the little pills. Um, and then, yeah, I, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a LSD dude. So, you know, I go, I go through periods though. Like I can go through like a month or two where like I'll trip a lot and then I can go like, you know, like right now, I, I don't think I have tripped since, I don't know, probably this fall. It's been at least a couple months, you know, and then, uh, but it's weird too. Cause I find if I smoke more weed, I don't trip or microdose as much. But then if I don't smoke that much weed or I, sometimes I quit, I don't smoke weed at all just for to give my lungs like a break. Um, Cause when I do smoke, I smoke like 24 seven. So then when I do that, I might trip more and microdose more. So I, I don't know, but I'd say my, my drug of choice is, is marijuana, but then, you know, like LSD and, and, you know, microdosing mushrooms is like right there too, but I don't do other stuff. I, I don't really like ecstasy or ketamine or, you know, even eat mushrooms. I don't even like to eat mushrooms. Maybe I'll make like some mushroom tea, mm -hmm. but yeah, but, and really I, I might drink some real high end scotch every now and then, but I'm not, you know, I'm like, if I have two drinks, that's a lot, two shots, you know? So yeah, I'm mostly like a weed, a psychedelic dude. So that's kind of how, if I'm feeling like I need to reset LSD, you know, if I'm feeling like, uh, like I'm working hard, like I got good, good tunnel vision. I probably smoke more weed, you know, but I think it's the LSD it gives me that reset to get that tunnel vision that I need. Cause you know, if you're trying to accomplish stuff, man, you, you gotta have that tunnel vision, man. You gotta be on task, you know, cause shit doesn't do itself. Yeah. You know yeah, what I'm saying? LSD works on the dopamine receptors as well. Right. So you just get your reward fix. I, it's been a long time though, since I did a proper LSD trip. I'm definitely, I'm definitely due one. Oh yeah. 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 Hey, that's what, uh, so, you know, a lot of my friends are like hardcore deadheads, right? And um, they always say like, like, you got to do a thousand hits or a thousand mics. You got to do a thousand mics. I'm like, no, I'll, I'll do like two or 300 mics. Yeah. Hey, so look here, I got, I got a recent uh, LSD story. So Dead and Company came through here last summer. I'm in St. Louis, right? And, um, you know, I got friends that follow the band. They still follow the band. So, and it's Dead and Company's last tour. So they were seeing all the shows. So they came through, like one flew in and one drew it drove in and we we got like tickets they got tickets for us like right in front of the stage you know like in the pit area right in front of the stage and so Amazing. my buddy is my buddy is like on the friends and family list so he gets he gets like the tickets he got two tickets everywhere he goes so we only had to buy like two tickets but so we're down there and 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 he told me he's like i'm gonna get your tickets and everything but he goes when we go in he goes i'm gonna dose you guys and my other buddy flew from vegas and he's like i'm gonna dose both both you guys and we're like okay okay cool cool and he's the type of dude, like, he takes a lot of acid, right? So we're in there, and we're in the pit, and, and and he's, like, he's trying to dose us. We're like, oh, no, wait till the band starts. And then finally, he well, we're, okay, the band starts, so we're like, dose us. So he has, like, liquid, right? He don't do no paper. He, like, carries bottles of liquid, right? So he got the liquid, and, you know, they don't do the liquid like, like this. Like, they put it on your skin, you know what I'm saying? And then you go like that, right? So he starts putting a puddle, like, on my hand, like, right here right like a puddle and then my friend too that flew from vegas he put a puddle in his hand right and i look at my friend from vegas and he looks at me and we both go like this so we dump both i mean we still got it it's still in our skin but like we didn't you know we didn't take the whole puddle we dumped it out and then what was funny is uh my friend from las vegas his girlfriend was there and he did the same thing to her and she licked it all we were like, oh, why did you do that? You're going to be tripping balls.
Oh, that's probably like that's probably like a thousand mics. You know, where me and him dumped it, so we probably still got two or three hundred. But yeah, I did like yeah. Uh, so that's that's my recent. That's a recent nice. LSD story. Yeah. So how do you kind of manage doing LSD in significant amounts in in public or at concerts like the Grateful Dead? I guess at the at the Dead concerts though, yeah. like. I don't everyone, know. That's how everyone, I always did everyone, it. Yeah. Everyone was on the same vibe. Everyone's on the yeah. same vibe at those places. As yeah, well. that's how I always. That's how I always did it. Though I started. I started taking LSD at shows. You know, um, I don't know. For me, LSD was always kind of like a, a outdoor thing. Like we would do it in the summer. You know, like go to the lake or go to the mountains. You know, go to the dead shows. You know, so that's kind of always. You know, some. But sometimes now, I, I don't know. Sometimes now, like I, I'll just take it. You know, like like if uh like I'm with my girlfriend or something, like we'll, we'll just trip, you know. But you know, mostly we do a lot of day tripping, you know. Yeah. But you know, not a, not a lot, but just like one or two, maybe three hits. You know, sometimes we'll do it a couple of days in a row. But you know, amazing. But you know, the the, the you know the the next day, you know, you got to take double the amount, or it's not going to be the same. You know, but still, you can still get that feeling if you want. Not, it's just not hardcore intense. Hmm. And yeah, this has been an amazing conversation and I know folks are really going to enjoy it. So just to round off, how do you feel now? So, you know, seeing pretty much the legalization of cannabis across the US now and yeah, the impending at least medicalization of psychedelics. How how does it feel, especially after, you know, serving this time? Yeah, I feel I feel justified. I feel, you know, I was on the right track, you know, um, I was headed in the right direction as, as a young man, you know, I, I saw stuff before other, you know, I feel kind of like a trailblazer, you know, uh, uh, activist, you know, uh, reformist, whatever you want to call it. So, um, you know, as things have turned out, you know, and, but at the same time, like it's kind of hard to believe because even if you told me like, you know, the end of the nineties or when I started my prison bid, you know, if you know, the mid nineties, if you would have told me like, Oh, you know, weed's going to be legal when you get out and all this other stuff. I don't know if I would have believed you because, you know, I, I was there, you know, I was in the clutches of the war on drugs. You know, it was the height of the war on drugs. You know, they were locking us up and throwing away the key. So, you know, it, it, it was it was hard to see that. But I do realize now in retrospect, and it's weird, too, because like when I do these LSD shoots or I'm around a lot of LSD or cannabis people and they know my story, they always come up and thank me, like 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 almost like a military, like a service or something like like that type of reverence. You know, they tell me thanks. So, um, you know, that's nice getting that from the, the, the community. But yeah, yeah, I, n- I never thought it would turn out like this. So, you know, but I feel justified. I'm glad it did. I, I'm glad, you know, that, uh, you know, I did have some sense as 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 a young you know, rebellious teenager, you know, just wasn't rebelliousness or, you know, trying to break the law or this or that, you know, really, it had some values, you know, behind it.